Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. World-renowned Christian philosopher, beloved professor, author of the classic Lament for a Son, my guest Nicholas Walterstorff is all of these and more. His memoir, In This World of Wonders, opens a remarkable new window into the life and thought of this remarkable man. Written not as complete life story, but as a series of vignettes, Walter Storff's memoir moves from his humble beginnings in a tiny Minnesota village to his education at Calvin College and Harvard University, to his career of teaching philosophy and writing books, to the experiences that prompted some of his writing, particularly his witnessing South African apartheid and Palestinian oppression firsthand. In this world of wonders is the story of a thoughtful and grateful Christian whose life has been shaped by many loves. Love of philosophy, love of family, love of art and architecture, love of nature and gardening and more. It's a wonderful, captivating story and we had a great conversation about it. I give you Nicholas Walterstorff. Nick, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So your most recent book is In This World of Wonders, Memoir of a life and learning. Now you're somebody who has written a lot as a professional philosopher, a lifelong academic, but this, and you, you actually spend time in the book talking about the joy of writing and some of the excitement of it, but this was not a book you were initially very excited to write. That's right. Correct. Is that because of the, you talk about growing up in this kind of uh, Minnesota uh, self-deprecating reformed uh, background. <laughs> I mean, is this considered bad manners to write about yourself? Yeah, well, as, as I remark in uh, the preface, I guess, um, I grew up in extreme southwest Minnesota. Uh, my family were Dutch immigrants of the reformed tradition, and that Dutch reform tradition conspired with Minnesota culture to say, never talk about yourself. Uh, don't blow your own horn. If other people talk about you, okay, um, accept compliments when it seems appropriate, but don't talk about yourself. So this was not a culture in which um, autobiography uh, is nourished. And the other thing that made me reluctant was, so I, so my, I spent my adult life as a philosopher. So I spent most of my adults, have spent most of my adult days reading philosophy books, philosophy essays, writing notes for philosophy lectures, giving philosophy lectures, reading philosophy papers by students. Really exciting, right? I mean, gripping. So how was I going <laughs> to how was I going to write a book that would that would keep people's attention? So it was it was those two that things that plus I never kept diaries so I couldn't write the story of my life. So I had these friends, I don't use this word in the book, basically nagging me for many years. And I was reluctant. But finally, I said, OK, it won't be the story of my life. It'll be vignettes. It'll be episodes that were formative, interesting, and so forth. And um, though I've spent my adult life as a philosopher, I've done more than just uh, read philosophy. And um, I'll talk about those other things, but also about the philosophy. So um, when I actually got into it, um, I had fun doing it. Yeah, it's interesting that you describe it as vignettes. You know, when Pope Benedict wrote his three volumes on on Jesus of Nazareth, in the second volume, he was responding to, in the introduction to 
people asking him what he was doing. And he said, you know, it's not quite Christology. It's not quite historical Jesus stuff. It's not quite this. He said, you know, the closest thing I can think of is to the section in the Summa where Aquinas talks about the mysteries of the lives of uh, the life of Jesus. And, and, and there's so, cause he's like, it's, it's biographical, but it's more to, and, and in some sense, this is the, these vignettes are sort of the, yeah, it's something like that, right? These snapshots of your life, uh, the whole picture, uh, you know, but it's not sort of a biographical in the in the in the easy, neat, tidy this, then this, then this. But it's these journeys you were on, sort of brought together. Exactly. It strikes me that your life, your your early life, as you write about it, was not an easy one. I mean, you, you your mother died very early in your life, you know, and your dad remarried, and in that marriage seemed to be from your perception a happy one but yet there was always a melancholy about him he had to leave town tragically to go to denver which later you found out was because of a false embezzlement charge and i mean there's just there was just a lot of heaviness in your life as a young man yeah that's true so my natural mother died when my twin sister and i were three and a half years old um and um yeah my father Looking back, um, I think was disappointed. He had a drop out of college after one year. I think he really wanted to be a graphic artist, but that was an utter impossibility in in Minnesota in uh, in the early thirties. So there was a melancholy in him. And it wasn't part of the reason he needed to drop out. There was wasn't there like sibling jealousy that he got to go to college, yep. and so so yep. and he looked like he had a pretty promising career ahead of him as an artist, possibly, but he had to drop out. Yep. So he had, let's see, uh, three siblings, and they were back on Minnesota farms. And, and the lore in my family was that they were just very jealous. And they said, my father's name was Matt. Matt, Matt cannot go to school. He's got to go to work uh, like, like the rest of us. Um, so he never be- he basically became a woodworker, a carpenter, and so forth. And then, yeah, the episode that you mentioned, he was working in this tiny little, in the uh, grocery store, in this tiny little village of Bigelow, Minnesota and was charged with embezzlement. And my father was the most upright person that you could possibly imagine. So he never talked to me about this. And uncle told me this about 10 years ago, long after my father had died. But it would have been shame for him to have the village whispering, did you hear about Matt embezzling? So off he went. And uh, it was during the war. So the impression he and my stepmother gave us was that he was going off to the war effort in Denver. (laughs) And And he was. But I now know that what really drove him out was this the shame of the charge of embezzlement. So it was, um, in many ways, I mean, there was happiness in my family, but they, but there was uh, darkness. Um, then I was sent off to work for my uncle at uh, 13, and uh, he worked me hard. Not cruel, not mean, but hard, long. Yeah, and you say in the book at 13, you basically, you had the experience that most people have almost at like 22, even today when somebody goes away to college, they don't think that they're out of home. You're going, you know, they, they, they still come back to home in the summer. But functionally you were kind of towing your own, pulling your own weight at, at 13. Like you'd moved out and, and you're supporting yourself yep. at your uncle's farm. Myself, never living full time, never living at home for longer than a couple of weeks after, after I was 13. Yeah. And supporting myself. And th- you, you write about the small town life that you grew up in in the Midwest and and you write about your religious upbringing and you, you have very fond memories. In fact, you talk about how the, that in this Dutch reform kind of 
Christian Reformed Church, the, the stereotype you say of Calvinism is that everything pivots around the doctrine of election, but you never recall even hearing a sermon about it. I don't recall ever hearing a sermon about election. I, I, I presumably knew it was there, but I, I don't recall any sermon about it. Nope. But you were struck by the worship, the preaching, the sincerity, the fellowship. I mean, this was a tradition that really formed you. And, and you know, later you would write about a, a world averting versus a world uh, forming or formative Christianity. And this was, in, in its own way, really a world formative. It was in the world, uh, you know, and, and it was concerned with things of this of this life. That's, that's exactly it. It was it was. Yeah, so I some so I and in one of my books I distinguish world affirming Christianity versus world avertive Christianity, and the tradition which I was reared was very much world affirming that um, there was work to do when there were games to be played, and um, a extended fa- family and extended family would often get together and we'd have great fun together with cousins and aunts and uncles. Uh, read books. My father did these pen and ink drawings on winter nights and um, at the dining room table. So there was never a suggestion that we should stay away from art, stay away from culture. It was, on the contrary, there were vivid discussions about all kinds of things. So it was, I think the best word for it is world affirming. Yeah. yeah it's, it struck me that you spent a lot of your adult years bringing to light some of the best of, of your tradition in, in this continental reformed church tradition, you know, you're, you're serving on commissions to talk about, you know, theology and liturgy and worship and, and helping shape a kind of Christian higher educational philosophy at Calvin college. It strikes me that some people kind of do this in reaction you know, or in revolution against the upbringing, but it was really evolution for you. I mean, the way you talk about it in the book, I mean, the, 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 all the stuff that you have written about as an adult, I mean, it wasn't presented to you with some of the subtlety and the refinement and reflection, but the seeds were definitely there, it seems like, even as a young man, to to sort of blossom into some of the mature reflection you did on your tradition as a philosopher, as an adult. Is that fair to say? That's, ab- that's absolutely correct. Um, so when I look back, as I do in the book, it, it feels like continuity, um, development, not just the same thing, same old thing over and over again. But um, when I went to college, to Calvin College, and I was presented there with um, uh, the thought of Abraham Kuyper, the Dutch theologian, um, who had shaped, very much shaped the, the 20th century, early 20th century Dutch Reformed tradition, it felt like felt it felt Scott like development, like um, oh, I'm learning, I'm learning who I am. This is not some jolting alternative, but it's it's deepening my becoming more aware of um, who I am and what it was that reared me. Yes, so it's been development, continuity, rather than some jarring rejection and lunging for some alternative. You also say that growing up in kind of family discussions and, you know, after church and things like that, that, that you learned later that it was the seeds of the intellectual life that was being lived out in your living room, a life of the mind. It's, it's, so one of the things that you learned early on in these spirited family discussions was, you know, the, the, the danger of the ad hominem argument, that you learned how to separate the person from their argument. And some of these things would stay with you for your whole life. Absolutely. So, um, so I I was born and, and uh, grew up for 12 years in this really tiny village of Bigelow, Minnesota, 200 people. Then we moved to Edgerton, 
thousand people, which was the um, home village of my stepmother. And there I became acquainted with her family, the, the Hannibergs. And they were absolutely remarkable. As you say, we'd get together after church for coffee at our house. We lived in the village. And there'd be these enormous discussions. And anybody could join. Women joined, men joined, children as soon as they wanted to. Um, and anything was subject for discussion. Um, what the what the new dams in the Missouri River would do to the Indians who were living in in, uh, in South Dakota, why the fish weren't biting, what pe- what these new pesticides were, would do, and so forth. Any anything was a topic of discussion. There was disagreement, uh, sometimes quite intense. But for me, the remarkable thing remains. This is my clear memory. When the time came, everybody would stand up, they would hug and kiss each other, and off they'd go. Uh, so indeed, I learned to separate the topic of the discussion from the person that when I disagreed with somebody, that didn't mean that I was angry at them. And that proved that has proved to be an extraordinarily valuable experience for me as a philosopher, because philosophy is filled with disagreements. You, you can't personalize them all. Yeah, right, right. You can't, right. You, any of them. <laughs> so you would go on then to Calvin College, the Christian Reformed Kind of right. denominational. Uh, this is like the intellectual mecca uh, if you're a Midwestern Reformed kid, and you this you you fell in love with the life of the mind that was being sort of that you know an affection that was being cultivated. You really, I mean, you f- you fell head over heels. Especially, you took your first philosophy class from this guy you write about, Henry Staub, and you were you said in thirty minutes you were in love. You're like, I don't know if this is philosophy, but or what it is, but if this is it, this is what I'm supposed to do. Yeah, that's. That's how it went. Um, I have no memory. Any, it was a required philosophy course. I did not know what philosophy was, but I took it since it was required. And indeed, as you say, we're 30 minutes into it. And I think this is it. I have no idea whether I would be any good at it. Uh, but if I am, this is it. So, um, so students, you know, students would sometimes ask me, Professor Waldersdorf, why did you choose philosophy? And I would tell them, well, I didn't choose philosophy. Philosophy chose me. And then I'd explain how that went. And they'd be sort of wide-eyed because uh, they were usually worried should they go into philosophy or history or English lit or whatever. Um, philosophy chose me. And what, what, what better thing for a Calvinist philosopher to say, right? Just like the Lord, I was chosen by <laughs> philosophy. I guess the people that studied English literature or, or you know, history were just reprobate. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so you, and it's interesting because you, you talk about the, the you know these intramural debates that went on to really shape your your own intellectual development, particularly a kind of one school of of, of thought that I think someone like Staub represented, which had a a kind of more open view to this kind of Calvinist Protestant contribution to philosophy and saw it as part of the ecumenical family intellectual history versus some others who really saw it like. There was the Christian philosophy, and and, and basically, until a certain kind of Dutch intellectual pedigree gets developed, that really the whole thing was 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 errant worldviews, you know, grasping in the dark. That you know, it's not that there was nothing you'd be learned there, but by and large, there was sort of before this Dutch synthesis and after it, <laughs> right? That's the intellectual marker. And you're kind of coming, cutting your teeth in philosophy among these discussions. Yeah, um, Scott, I suppose I learned three basic things about philosophy, uh, or absorb, learn, whatever. One is that um, philosophy is not just drinking in the facts. In fact, no academic discipline just drinks in the facts, but but there's 
a worldview at work. Um, and we were taught to not just learn the details of Plato or the details of Descartes, but, but to try to discern what, what, what orientation lies behind Descartes, what orientation lies behind Plato. That's, that stood me in good stead when I got to Harvard, uh, bumped up against logical positivism and so forth. The other thing I absorbed and learned was that the whole world was was our oyster. Um, we were not warned against, there was no index of forbidden books. We could read Nietzsche along with Plato and uh, John Calvin and anything, just so we did it perceptively and with a critical mind, and, uh, but at the same time, an appreciative mind. Um, we were taught that you could learn important things from Plato, Descartes, Nietzsche, and so forth. So they were not just the enemy to be disposed of and so forth. Um, and the third thing I learned was, yes, um, within the Christian tradition, we have our own disagreements. And so, so there's not some one Christian philosophy that you've got to absorb, but think for yourself. Yeah, and it seems that that, that one side of the divide more shaped you, the, the one that tended to see the broad the broad christian tradition as as part of the family tree as opposed to the one that was a little more parochial around kind of the reformed worldview or that kind of thing not that you weren't always distinctively reformed but it seems that there was a generosity on some of the formative way of thinking that seemed to stay with you for your whole life yes there was um, as i discussed in the book there was a movement in reformed dutch philosophy at the time of doyevert and volenhoven were the main uh, sponsors which was much more, well, was very dismissive of the medievals, the ancients. Um, their attitude was more, you, you read you read non-Christian philosophers to discern the error of their ways. Um, and there were students and a few profs who were proponents of uh, that way of thinking, but that never, that never grabbed me. <laughs> she, you went from Calvin, right? And, and this, this, you know, this kind of, traditional denominational school in the Midwest, but as open-minded as it was, it's still a, a sort of denominational evangelical sort of place. And then you go to Harvard, uh, <laughs> which is kind of, I mean, I couldn't think of two more different contexts and, and you go and you eventually stay to do graduate work, uh, to do doctoral work. And, and you, I mean, there you're open to a whole other world of what good and bad of what philosophy was all about. Right. Yeah. So, well, but in a way, I'd been open to those other worlds anyways, but by reading rather than live, by reading what other philosophers were saying, rather than live representatives. What was different about Harvard, of course, was that now there were live representatives of, um, of in, in some cases, extremely different um, philosophies and orientations. So it's, uh, your question is a good one, Scott, but I guess I didn't feel a jarring change, and it must have been just the change from reading what others were saying to having live representatives. And that didn't strike me as, I guess, as <laughs> all that different. It's interesting, too, because you talk about logical positivism and yeah. and seeing it's kind of it taken seriously and then kind of... I mean, you tell this great story about a colleague once who at a, at, at a meeting was saying, that, by way of analogy, that, you know, this Midwestern vacuum salesman comes and says, I'm going to show you the greatest vacuum, and the woman gets a demonstration. She said, but it doesn't pick up the dust. And he said, well, ma'am, if it ain't dust, uh, if this vacuum doesn't pick it up, it ain't dust. <laughs> and, right, and you talk about positivism, this desire, you know, this this fear about philosophy's role in the modern world as science becomes more and more dominant and it, it trying to sort of uh, really 
limit philosophy's discussion to these things that could be yeah. Yeah. proven meaningful uh, statements that could be rendered, uh, you know, about the world that were disprovable or analytic statements like all bachelors are males or two plus two equals four or things like that. But you really you talk about how, how this really came to quickly fall in hard times because like the vacuum salesman, it just couldn't account for a lot of what it couldn't pick up. Yeah, it was, as, as you suggest, it was it was I, I mean, the logic of positivists were inspired by natural science. They took natural science, modern natural science to be the road to the future. They weren't always upfront about that, but but that certainly was what was going on. Then they had to distinguish between the good the good intellectual stuff, natural science and mathematics and so forth, and the bad stuff, religion and metaphysics. And so they gave this so-called criterion of verifiability, um, that in science you could verify things, in metaphysics and religion you couldn't verify it. So it was meaningless. Um, and that's what Bosman was picking up. Hey, lady, if this thing don't pick it up, it ain't dust. If our criterion of our, of, of verifiability doesn't uh, tell you that it's meaningful, it's, it's not. But they had their own problems apart from that. The language of ethics, of ethics, surely is meaningful, but you don't verify it. What would verification look like? So it collapsed of its own weight, as it were, from internal uh, difficulties within a few years after I first brushed up against it. What helped me was also I had a mentor, um, D.C. Williams, who viewed the positivist movement with just sort of bemusement. His attitude was... Oh yeah, this too shall pass. <laughs> as as within two or three years it did. It's funny. I heard this story with T. S. Eliot when he was at Harvard in the early twentieth century, and they were debating these things. And the famous sentence they would debate is, "The present king of France is bald." And does this mean anything or not? And Eliot's response was, "Well, by George, there is a king in France, and he's bald." <laughs> and his response was. Every, even illusions have have reality. They have illusory realities. That you kind of you bring this 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 nonsensical king of France into existence by debating him so much. Yeah. So yeah, the positivists. When you look back on it, it was a very, a very sterile movement, very pinched and narrow. This given this adulation of natural science and wanting to be as much like natural sciences philosophers possibly could be um and you had a love for metaphysics and, and wound up you just you, you dissertate on, yeah. on 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 whitehead which was not really a thing that was of no, wide no. interest in your department <laughs> i mean I this was, is uh, yeah i was an outlier um so as, as i say dc williams viewed the positivist movement with bemusement and he was a metaphysician he just taught classical metaphysics and um, that gripped me. I thought, hey, this is this is stuff to sink your teeth into. Um, so um, he had us read Whitehead, among other, um, Alfred North Whitehead, among other things. And early Whitehead just gripped me. So I wrote my dissertation. And the fact that most of my fellow students thought it was all nonsense didn't uh, didn't sway me. <laughs> <laughs> and then you say you never really read Whitehead again. Like you oh, kind of. <laughs> yeah. so, so, um, so my problem was that I enraptured by early Whitehead, early and middle Whitehead, because D.C. Williams had given us readings from early and middle Whitehead. I had not read the late stuff, Process and Reality. Now, for my dissertation, I had to read it all. And the later stuff really disillusioned me. So I wrote the dissertation, uh, sent it in. I've never looked at the dissertation again, and I've never since read a word of Whitehead. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> You but, mentioned, I not, but I did not lose the fascination with metaphysics. That I became disillusioned with Whiteheadian metaphysics, but I did not lose the 
fascination with the metaphysics as such. You mentioned something that really struck me kind of as you were learning your craft and and you mentioned in, in that somewhere around that in that section of the book where you learned that philosophy is about how things what they are what things are and how they hold together and then you said something interesting about you realize that philosophy is about necessity versus contingency and so like an art historian is going to study the contingencies of art how this that how this master or this sculptor came after this one and 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 where they were in the history of Europe or the ancient Mediterranean or something. And the philosopher has to say, well, what does something have to be to necessarily be called art? What's the essence of art? What 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 makes the thing that the, the the thing that it is? And and you learn that that's what one of the important things philosophy was still really useful for and excited you about the project, right? This this tension between the necessity and contingencies of things. Yeah, yeah exactly. So the positivists said that philosophers actually following Immanuel Kant at this point. Philosophers should uh, limit themselves to dealing with necessities. Um, and I've done that in one of my fields is philosophy of art. I've asked what is art, what is representation, what is expression, and so forth. But I've gone beyond that to um, and, and, and not worry, am I dealing with necessities or with contingencies? Just illumine, illumine with a philosopher's tools art and illumine justice with the tools of a philosopher, not worrying as to whether these are necessities or contingencies or whatever. Um, that's been my practice. Yeah. So you sort of you, you learned that distinction and then sort of learned how to sort of. Uh, and then learn to sit lightly on it. Right. Or, or, or learn to sort of, uh, uh, what is it, sublate it, you know? <laughs> yep. Yep. It, it strikes me that I'd like to talk a little bit about a couple of your experiences in, in your professional life, but it struck me that, that you, you know, if philosophy ultimately, if you could say, look, from. You know, somebody like Plato on the, the real great philosophy is about the true, the good, and the beautiful, right? Yeah. That you've spent different these awakenings you had in your life, you know, where you really wound up throwing yourself into study and writing. Around. A lot of them came in one of those three, three section, three headings, right? I mean, there there was time you spent on. I mean, you were a father of reformed epistemology and this Christian philosophical, you know project you wrote a lot about aesthetics and art you spent time in south africa you wrote books like when justice and peace embrace and and i mean so it seems like you you've you've taken time to throw yourself into the the true the good and the beautiful i guess that's true i hadn't quite thought about it uh that's that's an interesting observation um so i did you're right my writing speaking can in fact fall into uh, most of it falls into one or other of those three categories, but um, it's often hard to find someone that can sustain passion for all three. And you had you didn't just write about you you were you're passionate about all three of those things. Yeah, and I think that's because I didn't get into them be because I thought I have to talk about justice as part of some philosophical system or something like that. Um, for the most part, when I've been, when I've taken up some philosophical topic. It's because of some existential experience. I talk about it in the book. Um, I talk about some of them in the book. I didn't talk about, I didn't start writing about justice because I read John Rawls on justice and uh, John Locke on justice and so forth. I started talking about justice because on a trip to South Africa, I was confronted with the cries and agonies of the people of color. And then the Afrikaners, the Afrikaners were present at the conference where these people of color were expressing the, were, were talking about the horrors of apartheid. And the Afrikaners said, 
Uh, but justice is not the issue. Benevolence is the issue. We are a benevolent people. And it was that blend, the people of color asking for justice, the Afrikaners saying, forget about justice, that just grips me. Um, I said, I cannot. I left a changed person. I, I said to myself, I, I have to speak up in my own way, not become an activist, remain a philosopher, but I've got to speak up for these people and more generally for justice. So when I look back, um, um, for the most part, philosophical topics that I've taken up after the early years of metaphysics um, have been responding to some sort of confrontation of one kind or another, something dropping on my doorstep and saying, I can't walk away. Uh, I've got to talk about this. So I talk about, in the book, I described several of those awakenings. I've just briefly described the South African one. Yeah, and, and, and there's ones on aesthetics. I mean, you're in this lifelong kind of engagement with the arts and 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 yep. how those are looked at. And, and there's another one that, that really struck me that James Montgomery Boyce, who is a big evangelical uh, Presbyterian pulpiteer at the time and, and kind of pop a popular evangelical intellectual comes to Calvin and gives these lectures on kind of why Christians need to believe, have reasons for believing in God. And yeah. it seems like it stirred people up a little bit. And, and, and you guys in the philosophy department are thinking, hmm, well, we don't really talk that much about this stuff. I mean, we, we kind of assume that belief in God is, is credible, but we know we're in this reformed evangelical context. And, and, and that starts you doing a lot of thinking about epistemology yeah, and, and, yeah. And, and what's proper. Is belief in God properly basic? Is it something that has to be grounded on other beliefs or is it something that is self is self-authenticating in some way? And you and Al Plantica, who, who start off as undergraduates together and take, you know, these, these different but related career paths wind up really starting a distinctive way of approaching philosophy as, as Christians that even certain contemporary Christian psychologists have sort of gotten inspiration from, from how you guys have, have, have negotiated your own self-understanding as, as real serious philosophers, but yet with a Christian identity. Uh, you're absolutely right. Um, so in my education at Calvin and El, El Planning's education, our philosophy professors and theology professors didn't didn't give us arguments for God's existence. They took for granted that it was quite okay to be a Christian. And now the challenge they set before us was to think about our justice, whatever, through a through a Christian lens instead of some sort of positivist lens or whatever. So then um, John Warwick Montgomery comes to Calvin and gives these talks in which in which he says, "You must we." We Christians must have arguments for the truth of Christianity, for the resurrection of Jesus, for the reliability of Scripture, and so forth. So, so these two things collide, reared reared in a in a context in which arguments were not the issue, in which apologetics was just not missing. And now Montgomery says, "But you need arguments." And so it's, it was the blend of it was the combination of two those two things that led me and my colleagues to say, "Hmm." Do you do we need arguments? Is Montgomery right about that? Were our professors wrong about that? Why do we need arguments? Um, and it was it was that little collision of orientations, ideas that led to reformed epistemology. Yeah. Well, led. I mean, there were several years in between <laughs> the initial nudge and the and and the thing itself. And you weren't thrilled that that Nick Walterstorff chose that as the uh, as the. Uh... As the title for the for his, for the working project, right? What was that, Scott? Well, I, I said you weren't thrilled that Al Planiga chose that as the uh, as the working title for a few of those papers, right? Reformed epistemology. You would have liked something a little less parochial. You said, yeah, yeah, 
Yeah, but I was never able to think of it, of, of the appropriate word, so there it is. Yeah. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Andrew Stravitz, Barry Stewart, Ben Crosby, Ben DeHart, Carol Clemens, Charlotte Donlin, David Norling, David Saul, Ellis Brazil, Jennifer Spite, Jennifer Underwood, Jim Cress, Joel Wentz, John Schneider, Jonathan Butran, Jordan Mossberger, Josh Redder, Kai Wittenpeg, Larry Rule, Liam O'Brien, Michael Butera, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Konauer, Sari Graham, Simone Garabedian, and Stephen Rowe. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. You also write in the book about your family life. You, you and your wife, Mary, we met, you guys met at, at Calvin. You have several children. You, you, know, you do all these interesting things. You start this reform journal, which is really uh, has one. It's one of these publications of the CRC. I, I've read, uh, I've read in the reform journal and seminary and stuff. But it's one of these things that has this disproportionate. It's got like twenty eight hundred subscribers or something. It's got a disproportionate intellectual influence, and you have all these. Uh, are your your colleagues are really not just teaching and and thinking as Christian intellectuals, but trying to really. Uh, respond in an ecumenically engaged way uh, to what's going on in the world. Exactly. Um, I didn't start it. It was started, uh, the Reform Journal was started maybe 10 years before I came on board um, by people senior to me. Uh, but then they invited me to be an editor. And it was, it, you describe it well, it was a terrific experience. Um, right. We never had more than, as I recall, 2,200 subscribers. Sometimes we, the editors, would say, oh, gee, we ought to have some more subscribers. So we'd get some consultant. And they, I remember two or three of these consultants. Invariably, the advice was, they didn't put it like this, but this was the advice. Hey, look, guys, you've got to dumb it down if you, if you want to have more subscribers. <laughs> and when we got that advice, we said, no, we're not going to dumb it down. <laughs> we'll, we'll live with few subscribers. But but it had extraordinary influence. Um, people weren't subs weren't subscribing to it, read it in libraries and so forth. Um, so it, it had an open ecumenical orientation, um, but we had a, we had a, an outlook that we uh, this world affirmative Christianity. So we talked about all kinds of topics, uh, everything under the sun. You also had this interesting experience where you were an elder at this sort of traditional Reformed church yeah. in in Grand Rapids, and yet you were part of this. Fellowship of the Axe, which yeah. was 
dynamic and you know, this, you know this kind of fellowship group meeting and gymnasiums and things and and eventually i mean you tried to get them worship space in the traditional reformed church that experiment didn't work and <laughs> and, and, and you felt like you know you're serving two masters was taking its toll on you and your family and you wind up this becomes a crc church and adopts the liturgical kind of reform proposal that you helped write, <laughs> and, and I didn't know. I'm thinking I knew I I've done ministry in various contract contexts with people that talked about this church they loved in Grand Rapids, Church of the Servant. And as I'm reading this, I come to realize this church my friends loved was this church you helped start. I did help start it, <laughs> and it went the way you said. Um, I was an elder in a big downtown church, and they had lots of lots of meeting space, and we had this small group in which we engaged in, let me just call it alternative worship. But the group's growing. We needed more space. So I said to my fellow elders, how about letting us, us, Fellowship of the Acts, meet in the basement, a sizable basement room. <laughs> I remember it as of yesterday, a large number of young people showed up. The average age must have been 25 or maybe 20. Uh, five of them drove up on motorcycles. Uh, there weren't enough chairs, so they sat on the uh, on the floor and so forth. Um, my attitude was, who cares? But the, but the other elders who were assigned to look at this and give advice as to whether um, um, the church should, on a sort of permanent basis, invite this alternative worship in its, in its uh, basement, they were shocked. So they went back and said, it's got to stop. And it was a one <laughs> a one meeting thing. And that led me to think, uh, uh, if if this movement is going to stay alive, it's got to become a church. It cannot just become um, sort of an after Sunday afternoon or volunteer thing. And so that's how Church of the Servant began, exactly. Yeah, it's an incredibly moving story. And, and, and this has always been, as a philosopher, I mean, you've always been a churchman. I mean, that, that part of your identity has always been central to you. And I mean, it's funny, I, there, you tell this great story where— you had this close friend who's a missionary and a, uh, and he, you know, a great theological thinker. And he, he, he was trying to get the denomination to sort of say that, that uh, the canons of Dort were no good because they taught double predestination. And, and you kind of were charged with, you know, being on this task force intellectually to think about whether that's true or not and kind of get some of the dour Calvinist, you know, stuff out of the, out of the doctrine books. And, 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 and he gets a little, peeved at you because you actually disagreed with him and he sits you down with tea and oreo cookies oh, yeah, to talk was, about <laughs> it was an uncomfortable episode his name was harry boer uh, and harry was annoyed at the canons of dort on the because of the doctrine of double predestination and i shared his just abhorrence of the doctrine of, of double predestination but he wrote up he wrote up a protest and i thought that he hadn't actually properly interpreted the words of, of the text of the, of the Senate of Dort. So I found myself in this uncomfortable position of, Harry, I agree with your position, but I don't agree with your argumentation. I can't support the argument. That really upset him. Um, understandably so. And so then this little episode of Harry calls me up and says, Nick, we got to talk. So he comes to my office uh, with a, a thermos and a tin box. And he comes in. I invite him in. Doesn't say anything. He sits down, opens the thermos. You, oh, he's got two cups and pours out tea and uh, opens this tin box. And he's got some Oreo cookies in it. Um, and there. <laughs> and then, then he says, okay, Nick, we got to talk. 
over tea and Oreos. Uh, <laughs> it was it was sort of painful, but it was also wonderful. It was quirky, really quirky, but wonderful, painful, everything mixed together. Um, <laughs> what, what did you not like about the doctrine of double predestination? This idea, I mean, this which for those of our listeners that might not know, it's this idea that God uh, elects certain people eternally to salvation and damns others to not salvation <laughs> uh, or, you know, uh, perdition, uh, you know, that what, what, what did you find problematic, so, so problematic about days, that? So already in those days, I had the intuition that this was a misinterpretation of, is basically based on an interpretation of Paul's letter to the Romans. I had the gut feeling that it was a misinterpretation of the letter. I hadn't spelled out what I think is the proper interpretation. I did that in a book that came out maybe 10 years ago, Justice in Love, where in the last two chapters, I argue the point that that traditional doctrine of double predestination is a misinterpretation of Romans. I had the gut intuition of that already at the time, and so so I was inclined to agree with Harry. I just didn't think that he had... <laughs> Interpreted the relevant sentences in the in the text properly. Is, is this? Did you have this happen often in life? Because you talk about early on learning to appreciate reading texts well from certain teachers. I mean, did is this the story in some ways of your intellectual life? It seems like that you have in, intuitions. You're a passionate person, and then you have to sort of let your head follow your heart and sort that out intellectually in a way where where where, where your head and heart can embrace. Uh, do it in a responsible way, not not misinterpret the text so as so that they go with your heart, but read the text closely to to see whether your gut intuition, your heart is 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 right or wrong. And, um, yeah, a good deal of my life is consistent of that. Now that you say it, and certainly certainly my experience with the doctrine of double predestination in the Book of Romans has gone like that. Um, early feeling that. This can't be right. Uh, but then maybe 30 years later, 25 years later, actually working it out by reading the text as closely as I could. Yeah. You made a decision early on in your career teaching at Yale, and you get a, an, an opportunity to go back to your alma mater. And you are pretty excited about it. But you're, I mean, you get, uh, you're, one of the people that brought you into Yale was couldn't understand why you'd want to do something like this. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, and yet, and you have another uh, another uh, colleague, uh, Preller, who is is was it Preller or I'm trying to think who it was that was more sympathetic to you, to, to, who was who who understood why you'd be passionate about going back to this place where you had cut your teeth on some of this stuff. Yeah, exactly. So. Um... I got my degree from Harvard, spent a year in Europe on Harvard's money. Um, Good way to do it. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sitting in Amsterdam. And in March, I get a letter from the chair of the Yale philosophy department, Brand Blanchard, offering me a job. So this was the old boys network at, at work. Um, I benefited from it. I'm embarrassed in retrospect. It was unfair, unjust, but, but I benefited from it. So, um, so I accepted it. I thought. Wow, um, great! Then, in my second year at uh, my second year at Yale, I get a letter from the chair of the uh, Calvin Philosophy Department, Harry Jelma, my former teacher, inviting me to go to Calvin. So, should I? Should I not? 
Claire and I, my wife, talked it over. I had a great deal of affection for Kelvin and for Gentleman. But I thought, boy, I better talk it over with my senior Yale colleagues. So I talked it over with Brand Blanchard, who got me in the first place. Blanchard thought this was just nuts. His basic attitude was, why would anybody want to leave Yale for any other institution in the entire world? But especially, why would anybody want to leave Yale for a place like Calvin? For, for him, Yale was the top of the heap. Well, prestige didn't mean all that much to me, so I took that with a grain of salt. And then I talked to Wilford Sellers. Sellers came from the Midwest. His father had, in fact, taught at um, the University of Michigan. And incidentally, his father, Harry Jellema, my Professor Calvin had been a student of Wilfred Sellers' father at the University of Michigan. I talked to him with Sellers. Sellers was not was not an old Yaley. He was not struck by Yale prestige in the same way. He knew about Calvin and his prestige in, in philosophy. So he said, well, Walter Storff, this might be a good idea. And then he uh, made clear to me as I had not really realized that it was very difficult to advance through the Yale ranks because it didn't at the time have a a tenure system. And he said, um, look, if you're really set on staying at Yale, on being at Yale, it's best to go away for a while and then come back. So it was uh, Sellers. So I ignored Blanchard's shock that anybody would consider anything other than Yale and went with uh, Sellers' advice. <laughs> you, and those were, I mean, that was a watershed decision for you because, I mean, it really did shape. It, it was, yes. You're right, it was. A, a, a life that was consistent and resonant with a lot of those early impulses and affections and, and attractions to uh, not just philosophy and life of the mind, but in a context of this world formative and affirming Christianity that you, and not just to be a receiver of it, but to help shape it and pass it on. It was very formative for me. Uh, I had great colleagues at Calvin, Al Plantingham. And what was especially formative for me I write about it in the book, was that when I was teaching at Calvin, every Tuesday throughout the academic year and sometimes through most of the summer, mm-hmm. we, we philosophers got together for two hours to discuss philosophy. Not to, and not to discuss somebody else's philosophy, but in each case, we would have a chapter or an article, part of a book, that one of us had written, and we'd go through that with a, a fine-tooth comb. Uh, it would go like this. Uh, one of us would lead the discussion. Um, anybody have anything to say about the article as a whole? Talk about that. Okay, page one. Anything else about page one? Now page two. Anything else about page two? And so it went. Um, I learned philosophical craftsmanship there. Um, it could be quite bruising. We liked each other, but um, sometimes it can... It, proved to be quite bruising. So I would talk to newcomers in the department and say, um, look, we like each other. We, we, this is an exercise of love, but but we together want to advance what each of us is doing. It was a terrific experience. People, uh, I went to Yale, nothing of the sort. People's, people said to me, why don't you try to start something like that at Yale? And I thought about it for a while, but um, it was would not have been possible. Um, Yale was very congenial. But it was not collegial in the same way. People were not work, interested in working on on the on the other person's help, helping the other person to improve the quality of the article. They were interested in, in improving their own article. <laughs> or yeah, essay. yeah. You, I mean, it's interesting because you go to Yale later in life. I mean, after dec after a long season at Calvin, and after thirty years at Calvin, I go back to Yale. Yeah. Yeah. So you spent the bulk of, I mean, your form, your your you know, young middle like. 
senior years as an academic at Calvin, you go to Yale, it's an interesting experience. And yeah, is part of the difference you're describing, there's a little more of this collective identity at a place like Calvin. You talk about even people in other departments and stuff. You had this kind of, you, you, there's this sort of idea that we're in this for, we're in this kind of formative project together at Calvin, whereas there's, it, it's probably hard, harder at Yale to figure out, and you, you talk about this, the things that people have in common. I mean, it's, it's, it, it, it's, it, it's a, a more pluralistic place. A uh, much more pluralistic place. And as I say, my experiences at Yale, everybody was congenial. So the, I didn't come, I mean, academia, there are a lot of hostilities, rivalries, and so forth in academia. I didn't experience that in my component at Yale. People were, not none of it. Um, the philosophy department had broken down into serious conflict, but that had happened before I got there. So um, so I was in at the tail, tail end of that, and it rebuilt itself. Um, but it wasn't community in the same way as Kelvin. Couldn't, couldn't be. Um, there was not, because it was much more pluralistic. At Calvin, there was, we had disagreements, of course, but there was an identity of orientation and purpose, which was not present at Yale in general. I mean, I had that with some colleagues, especially with two of them, Marilyn and Bob Adams. Um, we had, we had, it was more than congeniality in that case. It was genuine collegiality. I, I never knew her husband, but I, I spent time with Marilyn at a church I was serving part-time doing adult ed stuff and brought, they brought her in to do lectures and she was delightful. And I remember um, Robin Adams' book, Finding Infinite Goods at Princeton, Jeff Stout took us through that. And you talk about that book in your book. And I mean, I, I, I just, I was, astound, I was astounded by both Robert's Adams' book and Jeff Stout's mastery at taking us through it. <laughs> They were, they were dear colleagues, wonderful colleagues, and um, I mention it in the book. Marilyn died tragically of um, cancer, is it two years ago, something like that? Maybe it's, I think, two years ago this spring. Yeah, maybe it's three. Maybe it's three. And she shared your love for metaphysics. Yeah. <laughs> what a great, what a wonderful thinker. I mean, uh, yeah. There's a sentence you've written that I think about a lot, and I'll I'll, I won't. I remember the first time I read it, and I'll never forget it. The tears of God are the meaning of history. Uh, oh yeah, it, you wrote that, and and I've read a lot of your books. But there's only one of them I've ever given away um, multiple times. And it's a book you wrote, "Lament for a Son After the Death of 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 Your Son Eric," and, and that was a completely different kind of writing that you've ever done. In yeah. in the wake of this, there's this one thing you said, and you say grief. It's no longer the island, it's the ocean. Yeah, yeah. Um, and when I think back on that book, Lament for a Son, it is written very differently from anything else I've written. This this present book, um, In This World of Wonders, is closer to lament than anything else. I had the curious sense that when writing Lament for a Son, that the words came to me. Um, writers often talk about searching for words, and I've often, when writing, searched for words. But when writing Lament, it's mysterious to me to the, to this day. Um, I never felt as if I was searching for words. Mm -hmm. They came, and much of it was metaphorical. For me, sorrow is no longer the islands but the sea. Uh, and the tears of God are, how does it go? The, the meaning of, of history. The meaning of history. So I don't, <laughs> I don't know how I wrote it. That sounds bizarre, but... Um, I'd say Tom Petty said something like, God's already written all the songs. We just have to find them. Well, that was sort of it. Um, I'm just plucking it 
from the air. It came. You, it came. You talk about the writing of that book and you say love there are different sorts of loves, right? Loves of attraction, love, if it, but love is attachment. It's it, it, it's sort of the it, it's it's the most mysterious, deepest, yep. right? Like you know, it's it, it you know the attachment to a child, to a family member, to 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 a friend that maybe starts as a love of attraction because you're both into the same things or some reading the same books, and then all of a sudden you become attached and. And this this grief, the, the deepest sorts of grief, grief often are when when something or someone that we're attached to is ripped from us, like like so you had. Come to think that it's love is attachment more than love is attraction, and so forth. That um, that is the cause of grief. And the image that came to my mind, one of the images that came to my mind, I, I think I use the image in lament. So I, I was attached to Eric, but now he's gone, and so what my love was, my love is suspended without anything to attach to anymore. I think I use that image. It was so, you well, the attachment is, is hanging loose now. It's, it's, it's no longer tied down to anything. That's what happens when something to which one is attached dies, is lost. Um, yeah, because of the particularity, right? It's it's not that that part of that love can't attach to something new. It's like a vestigial limb at that point. You know, it doesn't. Yeah, yeah. And the image of this sort of rope attached, and now it's no longer attached. Hmm. Yeah, I I I, th- I thank you so much for writing that book. I mean, it, it it has meant so much to me and to to many people. I've I've shared it I've shared it with, and and it's not an easy thing to do. Yeah, I continually. Originally, I got letters. Of course, now I. Now I rarely get letters. I get emails. A um, couple a week, I would say, um, of people who've read it and found it helpful. In the in uh, in this new book that you're talking about, that we are talking about, um, the memoir in this world of wonders, I talk way at the end about my experience with prisoners who. Have yeah, lived. it's funny. It's funny because I went to school with Todd Chaffee, who drove you to this prison, oh, right? Really? Like, yeah, I know Todd. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. So I, I mean, there's a couple people like Eric Gregory. I mean, there's all these people that. Uh, you know, as I'm reading, and it's just, uh, it's a world of wonders in front of me, the number of lives you've touched that somehow tangentially or, or more I've been connected to. And yeah, so yeah, you talk about Todd Chaffee, who runs this program at Calvin, driving you to teach to prisoners. So Calvin College has begun um, giving a baccalaureate, four, a four-year baccalaureate degree. Well, actually, it's a five-year baccalaureate degree in Hanlon State Prison for men, which is 25 miles to the east of Grand Rapids. Uh, they give regular courses there, um, 20, 20 new students a year from around the prisons in Michigan. So a former colleague of mine, um, Kevin Corcoran, who teaches philosophy at Calvin, uh, was teaching a course and as part of the course, teaching a course to these prisoners. And as part of the course, he had them read my lament for a song. In the course of the discussion, he happened to mention that he knew me and that I lived in Grand Rapids. And... Some of the prisoners then said, well, Professor Corkin, would you invite Professor Walterstorff to come to um, talk with us? Mm-hmm. So Kevin asked me, and I accepted. Um, every now and then I hear about the book being on a course syllabus. I've never been invited before to participate in a discussion, such an academic discussion of women. And I doubt that I would have accepted if I had been asked, because my fear, you know, I don't, I don't know how it gets discussed in pastoral theology courses and so forth. But my fear is it would go like this. The professor says, uh, what, is, what is Professor Walterstorff's understanding of guilt? Do you think that understanding of guilt is correct? And so forth. And I would find this, yes, ew. 
So in prison, I speak for maybe 10 minutes about how and why I wrote the book. And then I throw it out to them for discussion. 20 guys in the room, 17 of them are in for life, middle-aged. For 10 minutes, I'm utterly perplexed by what's going on. They read a passage and then make some comments. And I saw no connection between the passage that they read and their comments. And then it occurred to me, oh, they're not reading this as Nick Walterstorff's lament for his son. They're reading this as their lament. They were using my words for their lament. That's what was going on. It just, it, it stunned me and moved me deeply. Um, probably the most moving teaching experience I've ever had. And they were open. They didn't conceal the fact that they had murdered their best friend, but that they had ruined all the relationships. Um, they were open. What a grace. Uh, what a grace to hear that. It was, it was incredibly moving. Then at the end, they all line up again. Oh, at the beginning, they wanted me to sign their books, and uh, so I did. 20 guys with copies of Lament, I signed. And they would say, oh, how honored we are, Professor Walterstorff, that you have come to talk with us. Um, first time in my life that students have lined up in a course of mine to say how honored they are that I showed up. Um, and then at the end, same thing, shake my hand, how honored we are. Eventually it occurred to me to say, I, I felt this in my gut, but hadn't been able to put it into words. And I'm honored by the fact that you could use my words to express your grief. It was, it was extraordinary. Yeah. And people have probably used your words in various contexts yeah. Yeah. to express various things, but this is probably nothing as intimate as that. Nothing is, what word do I want? Nothing is moving and stark as this. I'll read a passage, and then he'd say, talk about murdering his best friend. Um, yeah, and maybe maybe if that rope that can't attach anymore, I mean, you, you can't, it doesn't have anything to reattach to, but there is a, a, maybe a sort of empathy for the rope or something. I mean, something there is, yeah. it's, it's a, it's, it's a, it's, it's, it seems like something healing for that thing that's, that won't attach again. So in this new book, um, in this world of wonders, I talk about how I wrote the book, what led me to write it, and so forth. I don't want to talk about the book itself, but uh, how how and why I wrote it, yeah. and how Eric's death has affected me and my family, our family. I heard a, an interview with Richard Wardy a couple years back, and the interviewer asked him, you know, basically, it sounds like you're saying the only thing philosophy is good for is to help, uh, you know, the liberal democratic project and that's it. And he said, that can't be, he said, no, yeah, yeah. I think basically it's, it's to help most of the world become a little more like the United States and the United States to become a lot more like uh, Norway. And that's all philosophy can do until of course there's a suitcase nuke that goes off in a city and then democ democracy will be over. That's it. And the universe said that can't really be it. No, that's pretty much it. I, <laughs> I felt, I felt demoralized as the listener, <laughs> but I mean that wait, what, what, role does philosophy serve in in the wider culture you know what what do you i mean what role do you think there is for philosophers in you know in our world as a whole yeah so let me first so i knew rorty dick rorty knew him quite well um and he would make these deflationary comments about philosophy about almost everything uh i would not want him to be a coach of anybody at halftime <laughs> yeah, the halftime pep talk. Yeah, he's <laughs> it was it was never clear to me that he really meant the thoroughly deflationary comments that he was making. I often thought he just doesn't want to stick his head up and defend something something more humane. Um, so it was a I interpreted it as a sort of protective device on his part. I think he really thought philosophy had more to do than just uh, 
So what can a philosopher do? Well, of course, there are different kinds of philosophers. But, but in my case, what I've tried to do is listen, be attentive to my experience, talking to victims of apartheid in South Africa, talking to Palestinians, uh, listening to an announcer on the University of Michigan radio station saying we're going to play work songs today instead of symphonies and, and feeling the sort of jolt of that. So what I've done is try to listen to what, what comes to me and, re- and reflect on that, to clarify it, and show people, present to people a way of thinking about it, a way of thinking about art, which includes work songs in one's discussion as well as symphonies, and a way of thinking about justice and benevolence, which illuminates how it is that benevolence can sometimes be an instrument of, um, of injustice. Self-perceived benevolence, uh, an instru- instrument of oppression. So, so what I've tried to do is, is I suppose, open, illuminate, illuminate liturgy, illuminate corners of art, illuminate justice. Um, so, in fact, my practice is not all that different from what Rorty did. Rorty's basically was was doing the same sort of thing on a, on uh, the American ethos and so forth, but he came across in this deflationary way. Um, so my that's what I've tried to do, to illuminate our experience with the tools, with the toolkit of a philosopher. It, it, Chesterton, you know, in Orthodoxy, uh, talks about wonder. And I mean, the way I think about it, you know, there's a big difference between a four-year-old and a 14-year-old at the zoo, right? I mean, a four-year-old, everything is like a mythical creature. A 14-year-old, now they're just kind of on their phones and stuff because, you know, all right, blah, there's elephants, blah, there's cheetahs. But, you know, he talks about wonder and how, how basically that, you know, we're, we're as young as our dreams and as old as our cynicisms, Chesterton says. And that's why our eternal father is often younger than we are. And I'm struck by the title, you know, of your book, In This World of Wonders. I, I wonder, is that maybe what separates the tone of, of your work for somewhere like Rurity? Or is this at the heart of a good philosopher, the sense of wonder that you look around at the world and, and see it's worth illuminating? It's a good point. Um, I've been saying that Rorty, I don't think he quite meant his deflationary description of philosophy, but I don't think there was much wonder in him. For me, wonder, for me, the title seems just right. A, a world of wonders. Um, I give the example. I remember my father was a woodworker. He just, that was his essence, a woodworker. He sometimes did carpentry, ordinary carpentry, but he disliked it. He was no good at it. It just seemed crude to him. So I can remember as a little, he he would collect various varieties of wood to make something out of. And I can remember as a child, his rubbing his hand across a piece of wood and saying, Nick, look at this grain. This is going to make something really beautiful and wonderful. It was the only word I can think of as reverence. He had a reverence for um, for wood um, and for craftsmanship. Um, so that, has, that sort of thing has stayed with me. Um, this world is full of wonders, things to love, to admire, to enjoy. Wood, wood um, Japanese ceramics, uh, Hans Wegener, mid-century, mid-20th century Danish chairs and so forth. Well, you, you've spent a life in wonder and, and illuminating the things uh, that, you know, the inspiration of your wonder. And, and your book is does a great job of, of telling the story. Thanks for writing it. And thanks for spending some time talking with me about it. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you like what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media 
or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Nick for coming on the podcast. Do check out his book, In This World of Wonders. You won't regret it. And thanks to you, my friends, for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, fare thee well.